0: Hey there. Thanks for listening. Before we jump into this episode, I just want to remind you that this episode is brought to you by us over at TalkPython Training and Brian through his PyTest book. So if you want to get hands-on and learn something with Python, be sure to consider our courses over at TalkPython Training. Visit them via pythonbytes.fm slash courses. And if you're looking to do testing and get better with PyTest, check out Brian's book at pythonbytes.fm slash PyTest. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 246, recorded August 11th, 2021. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Ockett. And I'm David Smith. Yay. Hey, David Smith. Welcome. So good to have you here. It's good to be here. Yeah, you've been a, um, a suggester of topics, I believe. You have sent in some ideas and thoughts for us. And well, we're going to get a, a good dose of that today for sure.
1: But honestly, if I would known that you're gonna open this up, I probably would have ordered some of those because it was a little bit of a scramble be like, Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, I already gave them that hint, I already gave them that tip. So yeah, had to yeah, dig yeah, a little you've bit. You've already to-
0: shared all your favorites. Well <laughs> your losses are gain because you've made it easier for us in the past. So thanks for sharing those things and uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for being here. It's gonna be great to have you definitely. That was great. Yeah, want to want to give the quick elevator pitch on you people, what do, people shouldn't what do should they know about you? Well,
1: I'm a, a recent tech convert, I'll say, uh, over the last 10 years, I've been working in the manufacturing space, either in quality engineering or manufacturing engineering. And over the last couple of years, been using Python a lot more heavily, I uh, used to do a lot of VBA at Excel, which it, it was it was painful. And I got a suggestion from one of our equipment suppliers to say, Hey, you know, use Python. It's really, really nice. I kind of resisted doing it because I didn't want to learn something new. It seemed intimidating because it's you know it's a programming language. I I'm not a programmer, right. but I I you know finally caved when it came to trying to automate plotting, which is pretty painful in Excel. And uh yeah, once I started on it and had something useful working in a couple hours, I was hooked. And then I started looking for more and more resources. Found your show, and you know got more and more into it from there. Started digging into the web, and it's just been a I'd say an upward spiral from there. And uh about Probably about two and a half weeks ago, I started in my first, uh, I guess, official tech role in a similar kind of domain uh, as a, for an automotive supplier. I'm um, doing uh, data engineering work. So it's been really exciting to be able to use Python full time. It is part of my job because, you know, what the, the bits and times I got to use Python before, that's always the parts I like the most. So I'm happy to be doing it, you know, on purpose. Awesome. Yeah, me Congratulations. Too. I wish, I, I, wish I could do it full time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I remember my first full-time software development job. I was like, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. I better figure this stuff out before they fire me. I can't believe I'm doing this. It was so great. yeah, So good. All right. Well, congratulations and and happy to have you here. Brian, I feel like we should document this.
2: Definitely should document it and test our docs too. So um, one of the things I'd like to talk, did I just try to edit? There we go. Um, Something that came up recently was uh, uh, Vincent uh, Warmerdam. I think we've had him on the show. Mm -hmm, We Uh, have uh, a couple episodes ago, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Vincent announced that he's got a, a a library called Make Test Docs, and I kind of love this. So uh, the idea is um, you—it's a bunch of utilities that you can use to uh, to help test your documentation. It, it doesn't do it right out of the box. You have to you have to create your own test files to do this. But the idea, like the 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 uh, the first example that he shows on his README is. Um, is that you've got a markdown file and it's got some uh, some Python or Python blocks and code blocks in it, and you can uh, make a test that goes through, reads the markdown, grabs the Python uh, code and runs it, and if there's any problems with it, if there's any uh, exceptions, it uh, fails the test. This is just brilliant. Um, there's examples in here for uh, for doing it with docstrings and even class docstrings, and then Vincent even uh, did he does the com code. And he did a little comic code video
0: on how to, oh, nice. how to use this. So Yeah, and you're putting cool. that in the show notes for people, right, to check out?
2: Yeah, yep, there's a link to the tutorial with the video. Um, the suggestion or the use case that he was talking about at first was uh, that maybe you're using make docs for documentation. Therefore, you've got a bunch of markdown. But my use case is going to be blogs so yeah uh, right. i think that's a
0: huge use case actually
2: yeah i've got python code in my in my blog source code that's in it's markdown files i totally want that's one on my to-do list is to try this to make sure that the blog content is accurate so
0: that is super cool. cool you know one more thing that you might find interesting i like, think this is a a more true software engineering type of solution but another uh, sort of WYSIWYG wig as you work style of solution is pycharm if you have a markdown file and you have python code in there will highlight the errors and actually show you if like symbols are missing and stuff so if you had the markdown associated with the sample code and then you like do stuff with your little examples it may uh, actually show show you the errors live as well oh, that's cool yeah i mean yeah. that's not like a ci sort of keep it fixed but that's a as you type kind of thing
2: yeah, and the other comment that he had is, um, if you, I normally don't put like asserting things are valid in in documentation, but uh, the co- comment in the README is that if you put asserts in there, it'll get checked also. So you've
1: got like unit tests built into your documentation. So
0: that's Super cool, neat. David. What do you think?
1: It's interesting. I'm just trying to figure out: is a are you doing like a parameterized test and Looking at your inputs versus outputs for the code that's in in the documentation, or how do how do you actually know it's testing correctly? It, oh, right, is it a valid Python or so what is the the,
2: the little code snippet we've got in that we're showing on the screen in the chat, but also there's a link in the readme to the read in, in the show notes to the readme. Um, the parameterizes that it uses um uses the like in this example, I'm saying go look in my docs folder. And for everything that it finds in there that's a markdown file, that'll show up as a, uh, a, a parameterized a parameterization of the test. So if I've got um, this test will run once per file. So if I've got uh, three markdown files in there, it'll, uh, the test
0: will run three times. This is the most comprehensive and yet extremely short test I've seen. In <laughs> a really long <laughs> time, it's three lines and it will like basically work, uh, traverse a tree of markdown file hierarchy type thing.
2: Oh, I do tons of really tiny tests. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, nice. Nice, nice. All right. Avaro, welcome to live stream. Happy to have you here. Uh, let's see. Let's move on to the next one. I think speaking of users giving us, our listeners giving us ideas and helping us out here, I want to talk about something that I've been hanging on to for a little while, well, since March. But I've finally decided it's it's time to talk about it. And that is creating queues, out of process, sort of asynchronous queue processing. So if I've got, uh, say, a web app or an API, or even if I'm testing a bunch of hardware and I want to kick off a bunch of jobs, eventually, I don't want to, you know, necessarily block on all of them. I might want to push them down so other things can work on them. Um, You know, if I'm going to send a bunch of emails, if you've ever tried to send a thousand emails in order synchronously. It turns out that times out your web request. Don't do that. So a better idea would be to like push them to a queue and have some sort of background process. Go, oh, there's new emails to send. Let me jam those on down the line. So uh, Scott Hacker sent over this uh, pointer to this library, a small but cool little one, called, called it is called QR3. And QR3 is a queue for Redis. And the three means Python 3 because there used to be a QR that wasn't three that's not Python 3 compatible. So here's like a, a reimagining of that for Python 3 or just a, a compatibility uh, that got moved over. So it's pretty cool. If we check it out. The API and implementation or the, the the usage is quite simple as you could imagine. So all you gotta do is you gotta, um, it's built upon Redis Pi. You've gotta have Redis installed. That could be, you know, wherever. It could even be Redis as a service on some of these cloud platforms. Run it in Docker, run it locally. Then you have Redis Pi. And then you just go over and you create a queue so you just say queue and you give it a name and then some server connect info like uh, location authentication and whatnot. And then all you've got to do is you push items to it. They could be just really simple things like a bunch of email addresses you're going to send, but it could also be really complicated. Like, for example, it could be, um, say, Pydantic models that store all the data that you need to process that request. So that's pretty cool. It has um, the, the default way of getting data over to it is through CPickle. And Cpickle is better than Pickle, but still has issues and other restrictions. Um, Some of the restrictions are you can't put certain types of objects. Like it wouldn't make sense to serialize a database connection that has an open socket or a thread or some weird thing like that, right? But most of the sort of message, here's the data you need to process, you would send over, all that stuff would work. And you can also um, create your own serializer on a per queue basis, which is kind of cool. So if you said, I want to only work with, pydantic models you could put the sort of from dictionary to dictionary transformation with the validation and all that kind of stuff i personally would not use c pickle because one of the things you can run into is if you upgrade your version of python on one server but not the other because you're in the process of going from one to the other and some thing has a different structure and memory and gets put over there the other ones can't read it or like there's always these these challenges of pure binary matches so i, I don't know i would do that I'd probably uh, serializes JSON or something and serialize it back. But anyway, it's pretty cool. What do you guys think?
2: This looks nice. I actually haven't used queues in uh, Python before, but it's on my to-do list um, because, I mean, designing complex systems, breaking it up into into different
1: processes with queues back and forth is a cool way to do it.
0: Yeah, I'm so. kind of inspired by this. Uh, I kind of want to uh, do more stuff with queues as well. David?
1: Oh, it seems like a really clean, simple way to, to use queues. I, I'm with Brian. I haven't really used it in a uh, Python context before, but like the examples you gave are, are perfect. You know, emails are they take a long time, so you don't want to be binding up your, your main application. You need to dump this off into a background task, and this looks really, really simple to use. So, um, you know, I seem like it'd be worth a try for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. Other things are like you need to generate a report that takes thirty seconds. You know, kick off the generation and then see if it's in the database and just do some sort of like Ajax poll until it's there or whatever. Um, It has some more features. So it has a queue, which is first in, first out, as you can imagine. Uh, It has a capped, I call it a capped collection. I feel like it should be a capped queue (laughs) because it's implemented behind the scenes as a capped collection. Uh, They also say a bounded queue is another, uh, aka. So the idea is if you're doing like analytics and logging and you're trying to eventually process that and save it to the database, but you want to say, you know what? We really don't want this queue to get more than... 100,000 items at a time because we should be writing into the database and if for something goes wrong, it could completely wreck the server. So you can create <coughs> these capped queues where you're like, I'm going to start throwing away old stuff if we don't get to it in time. There's a DQ, which to me sounds like getting stuff out of a queue, but oh no, it's a double-ended queue. A double-ended queue. Uh, it should be a, yeah. Anyway, it should be, um. the idea is you can basically put stuff onto the front or the back and you can pop stuff off the front and the back. So you could, for example, put low priority priority items on the back, or if something's really important, you could kick it up to the front or right to the front of the queue. And then finally, you also do a stack. Um, You can also do a priority queue, which is like sort of pretty close to what I described, but you can't jump ahead of the things that have a similar priority, right? Like if there's super urgent and then low, you can put like a super urgent new thing at the front of the super urgent ones, but it would appear before all the others, things like that. So uh, this is all pretty neat. What I really like about this is obviously Python has queues built in, right? Like that's just a data type. Uh, list itself could basically be a queue. You can pop stuff off the front and shazam, you have a queue. Um, but this is out of process, right? This means if you have to scale out for your worker processes in any sort of API, or you want it to be able to be durable across app restarts, things like that. And if you think, oh, I'm not going to scale out across... I'm not having multiple servers. Like almost every Python web app and web API runs with multiple worker processes at a minimum. So yeah, you're scaling out. Anyway, I think this is pretty useful. And if you're all about Redis, this is cool. Redis seems nice. I'm kind of inspired to do something like this with MongoDB, but I'm also busy. So probably, probably not right away. And John Sheehan out there in the live stream is telling me that uh, learned a few years ago that DQ is pronounced deck. So yeah, double ending. Yeah, all right, so deck. Thanks. And then Teddy on live stream says, I'm not super familiar with queues, but how would it work if you had, uh, your queue process that execute Python code? It would end up being a process uh, sequentially because of the Python gill. Uh, yeah, so are you, are you ending up with like a serial process because of this, uh, serial processing? I think it depends on just how you create the workers, right? So there's two ends that you build. One end is the put stuff in the queue. Then you literally build the end that goes to the queue and says, give me the next item. And that's stored in Redis, which obviously can support multiple clients. So if you just scaled out the, cons- the, the consumers of the, the queue messages, the things running the jobs, then you would escape the gill, right? Because you would have multiple processes.
2: Uh, you can do you could have multiple things feeding the queue as well. Like yes. uh, uh, multiple web requests or something. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: All right, David, what you got for us? All right, well, are you,
1: either of you heavy Pandas
0: users? I'm a pandas admirer and I use it a little bit, but I always feel like when I come to pandas, I know there's way more I should be doing with this. And this is so cool, but, uh, not as much as I should be. Well,
1: and I use pandas pretty, pretty heavily in my previous job to do a lot of analysis, especially on the uh, one dimensional data sets. And, uh, you know, it always happened when I first started using pandas, I was doing a lot of really bad things like it arose and that type of thing. And the more you kind of learn about it, the better you get it. Doing set of type operations. But even even, you know, in the last, you know, couple of months, you'd think I'd have everything down, but the API is huge. And I always had these ah moments because I learned about something like transform. And you know, once I realized what you could do with transform, it simplified so many things that I was doing. And uh the first item I have is an article that says 25 panda functions you didn't know existed. And I, I don't normally like these articles because they almost feel a little bit clickbaity, but this one actually had a a handful of ah moments for me, so I I thought I would go ahead and share it. So um, so I have them listed in the show notes, kind of the ah moments for me, but uh, between is a really nice, uh, really nice. uh, I think it would be considered a method on the data frame or a series and basically allows you to simplify logic instead of trying to say greater than or equal to blank and less than or equal to blank. You can just say between values, very similar to uh, the operation that you would do in a SQL uh, transaction. Uh, Styler, I had no idea existed. Uh, you can actually apply styles to um, the tables coming out of Pandas. Um, I do a, a lot to try to make my, my notebooks really, really pretty so that I can convert them to HTML or another format and share them with the business. The business isn't typically like notebooks, but I, I'm trying because I, I can't stand the intermediate step of copying to a PowerPoint. But uh, this, this would definitely help. You can do uh, gradients, you can um, may have a bunch of different functions uh, behind that. Uh, options is another one I, I've kind of played with a little bit. Uh, but there's one in here that I wanted to try before the show. I hadn't had a chance. You can change the graphing backend on Pandas from App to something else. So at some point, I'm going to try changing it to Plotly because that's my my preferred uh, plotting library for most things. Uh, convert dtypes is really nice. If you know you have a categorical type uh, set of information, you can dramatically lose hum- or reduce how much memory is taken. Uh, mask was a nice... Uh, a nice one. It basically allows you to quickly convert, uh, somewhere down here, uh, quickly convert uh, certain particular values or values that meet a criteria to uh, another value. I was doing this oftentimes in multiple stages. And this would clean up that code significantly. Uh, NA smallest and NA largest uh, also could have been very helpful. Essentially, uh, it's similar to like a max or a min, but instead of just pulling a single, you could pull, in this case, five. And a uh, you know, clip
0: uh at time oh, cool so like if i want to see the five largest revenue producing customers in my data frame i could just yeah. quick do that yeah
1: Yep. and there are there are ways you can get, like with anything else pandas you could use a couple other methods to get that done too but it's just so much cleaner to do diamonds and largest five and then price it's just very clean and fast instead of having multiple lines to do a transformation and then a transformation and then uh, another change so I I wanted to suggest this article. Like I said, I've been doing pandas for a couple of years, and I still have these ah moments. Yeah. And this, this article, well, some of them aren't maybe quite ah moments for me. They may be ah moments for someone else because everybody probably knows twenty percent, and maybe a slightly different twenty percent of the pandas API.
0: Yeah, this is really neat. I love these types of things. That I mean, it's super easy to just scan through and decide whether or not it's it's really helpful to you. Uh, yeah. The one for me, the pandas one that had the biggest like, oh my goodness, was uh, web scraping and, and, and like pulling HTML tables and turning those into data frames. So yeah, it, like, obviously no, I can go, yeah, you go with like requests and beautiful soup and do something, but then you still end up with just a table of HTML. But with mm-hmm. Pandas, you can say, read HTML and then just give me table three as a data frame. Like it's ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now Pandas has some really nice, uh, IO tools too, around CSVs, Parquet, most the most common data data format types, and even some of the le- you know lesser common ones. It's uh, it's a it's a really nice library overall. But yeah, like I said, there's always always some odd moments, and it's nice to have a, a article that highlights several odd moments for me.
0: Yeah, super cool. So um, uh, go ahead, Brian. Uh,
1: the the one that jumps right out at me
2: was the number number one one. I didn't know that that you could just write Excel with
1: pandas. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and I, I think there's another a wrapper around Write Excel that of simplifies converting a data frame to excel but i think write excel lets you do some more more intricate things with excel
0: yeah oh, pretty cool yeah that's that's super cool all right before we move on really quick from the live stream uh i liked uh, when you ask if anyone uses pandas and likes it dean Langston just said yes all caps beautiful but then also suggested pointed out this project that he built that is a like a give you live tips while you work with pandas and notebooks type thing called dove panda so I literally am just checking this out now, but as you work with it, you can see here, like it gives you like little tips like, oh, by the way, did you know you can concatenate like this? If you specified access one, you get you know, such and such and gives you little, little tips and tricks uh, as you work with it. So people can check That's that out. Neat, Yeah. Yeah. on so, mom moments. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thanks Dean. Brian, I, I do love some fast API and I love rich and I'm, I'm looking forward to what you're going to do by trying to put these together.
2: <laughs> yeah, well I was um I've been watching you know, we've been watching Rich of course and Fast API a lot. Um and uh so this uh, this article's by Hayden Codelman I think. Um and it's a uh, Fast API and Rich tracebacks in development. So uh the idea is that one of the things that cool things that Rich has is like these awesome tracebacks and logging. They're just beautiful. And I mean, if you could say a traceback is beautiful, it's because of Rich probably uh yeah. they pre- they look pretty great and the logging is pretty good so the um and i'm just going to scroll down to some of these examples at the bottom so the um oh it's kind of tiny but the logging is nicely and colorized and stuff and then the um the exceptions one of the things with the tracebacks and exceptions is there's a highlighted line number it highlights the actual file name and um kind of puts in lower you know more muted colors the, the stuff you don't really need to care about right away and uh, it's just kind of a nice way to do it, but it uh, anyway. gives you
0: syntax highlighting in your like keyword highlighting in your code. Yeah, uh, and the uh, code so, that is the stack trace of the crash in the traceback.
2: <laughs> and so we've we've seen some examples um, of how to um, of how how to how to use the rich tracebacks from other programs, but I haven't seen it actually written up by somebody else. And so this is nice. Uh, using fast API um, is uh, fast API is awesome for building web. Web APIs and, uh, but how do you do this? How do you get this your application to do this? And so I'm not going to scroll through all of this, but the uh, the gist of it is is there's really only a few steps. So this post walks through all of it with all the code, and just for the most part, you create a database a data class with the logger configuration, Um, and then you need a function that will either install Rich as a handler or the production log configuration. I like that he puts this this the switch in place. So the idea around this is, when you're debugging, um, you're going to use this this nice uh, these nice tracebacks. But when you're uh, when it's in production, it's not going to use that. It's just going to uh, do the the, uh, the default logging. Um, and then uh, you have to call logging basic config with the new settings. And then a little note that if you're using uvicorn, you probably want to override the logger for that. And that's it. it. Really sets it up, and it's got all the code in place so that your fast API, API application can have
1: these lovely logs and tracebacks during development.
0: Yeah, that's super neat. David, are you a fan of either of these frameworks?
1: I haven't had a chance to use Rich too much. I have been watching Textual pretty closely on Twitter because it's just phenomenal it's what he's been able right? to do. Like how,
0: it, how do you have a docking scrolling it, side thing in a t- terminal window? What is going on here?
1: Um, and I, I do. I love FastAPI. I built my uh, my wife's website using Flask, and I, I liked how FastAPI was similar to Flask in a lot of ways. But you know, some of the syntax is was a little bit cleaner, although with the the newer version of Flask, it kind of borrows some of the same syntax, and it just got a lot of really good necessities nest, uh, built in. The API documentation was really. I think that's kind of clutch when you're learning a new framework too, because you're not having to do like curl commands or anything like that. You can just bring up a web page and poke at it, you know, visually, which is which is pretty nice. So, no, I, I really yeah. like fast. API. I, I just, you know, other than you know, kind of building some small toy things, I haven't had a really compelling reason to use it yet. So, yeah, yeah, very cool. Toys are compelling reasons, I think.
0: <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Maybe some Arduino thing could run a fast API server. Who knows? Yeah. All right. So let me talk about some good news. Good news. Good news. Uh, we've had. A couple of things we've covered about some visionary sponsors coming on to support Python and the PSF and so on, which is fantastic, right? I've certainly whinged a lot about people running, you know, multi-billion dollar revenue companies and doing nothing really to give back other than maybe a PR or something. But we've got Microsoft, we've got Bloomberg, we've got Google as visionary sponsors, right? And one of the things that that made possible is the C Python developer in residence. I don't know if it's directly related to one of those or if it's just sort of like that, sort of brought it all together. But recently the PSF said they're going to have a developer in residence position and well-known community member, friend of the show, Lucas Lange has um, applied and got hired. He's now the developer in residence. This is a little bit old news for it's from last month, but I wanted to make sure we gave it a quick shout out because I think it's going to be pretty interesting to know that there's a developer side person Inside the PSF, making sure things are going. So, the PSF has seven, eight, nine, I don't know, something like this. I haven't got recent updates, including this, but uh, include this position full time employees, right? So, there's a bunch of people who work there, but to my knowledge, this is the first like developer person rather than marketing, legal, whatever, right? All that, the sort of business director, administrative side. So, this apologies is to everybody that works
2: at the PSF that's like, like yeah.
0: don't forget me. Yeah, no, no, no. Those are super important, but it's it's interesting that there's not been a Python developer type of role within that group. Yeah. Is is all I'm saying. Um, so they put that out. Lucas Lenga is now part of it, and there's some interesting takeaways here. So um, basically, let me do the do the, just give a, a bit of a quote here for how Lucas decided to sort of position this and how he sees it. He said I, I don't really want, want this to be like hey, I am the uh, you know, the appointed CEO of Python, so here he, to what I have to say, right? He said no, um he's in, he's incredible hope, incredibly hopeful for Python because of this and wanted to apply for it and so on. He says, I think it's a role that with a uh, role with transformational potential for the project. In short, I believe the mission of the developer in residence, the DIR is to accelerate the developer experience of everybody else. And that not includes just the core team, but most importantly, the drive-by contributions, contributors submitting pull requests and creating issues on the tracker. So he's hoping that with this role, he can do things like um, make sure that there's a steady review of the stream of PRs and issues so they don't get stale and there's not a backlog, triage the issues, Uh, be present in the official communication channels to unblock people if they get stuck trying to contribute, keeping CI and test suites in a usable state and making them run quick and uh, keeping tabs on where the work is most needed in the projects that are most important. So he's sort of the, it sounds to me almost like the the technical person in the room to help the community keep moving and just making sure, Oh, everyone's having a problem. Many people having a problem trying to do a PR because they can't get CPython to build. Let's make that incredibly simple for them and things like that.
2: Yeah. It's, I, I, li- I like his attitude of where he's going with this.
0: So, yep yep if i didn't point it out uh lucas is also the creator of black the black formatter which i know we've talked about in a hundred thousand variations here so that's great (laughs) david how do you feel about this
1: i think it's great any any full-time person that can have working for the psf or on python directly is going to help increase stability and I, i like his approach too where he's going to try to increase throughput by maximizing everybody else's efficiency i think that's a it, it'd be easy to say, like, oh, I'm going to work on these features or on this. But he's most concerned about making development for Python as ergonomic as possible, which I think ultimately will create more throughput and, you know, a better better Python in the long
0: run. So. Yeah, and absolutely uh, props to the PSF, because it's easy to hire somebody and say, here's what I want you to produce for us. It's harder to hire somebody and say, I want you to be an enabler of other people, because it's, it's hard to measure that, right? mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: One of the interesting things that I think that he's doing is, is I'm not sure if he's going to keep this up, but it looks like he has so far is he puts out weekly report posts of what he's been doing. So this, I can't imagine having that much public scrutiny over what my (laughs) work week looks like, but I mean, Brian, why did you spend so
0: much time working on CI? Come on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty impressive. uh, And uh, it's cool that he's, he's doing that. Um, That's a, the entire Python world is watching. No pressure yes. or anything. So. Yeah, he
0: did say he was a little nervous uh, about this because this is the first year of this position, and so the success or failure that he has will influence like whether it continues and uh, you know what happens uh, sort of in the future. So super yeah. cool. Let me uh, get a little feedback from the audience here. So uh, Sam Morley, hey, says good for Lucas. He's great. I watched a bunch of videos he did on YouTube about making music with AsyncIO. I haven't seen those. i have to check them out. And Dean out in the live stream says, CEO of Python reminds me of a known joke in my country where (laughs) this famous newscaster was shouting, get me the person in charge of the internet. Get me the person in charge of the internet. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Dean, you have to let us know what country that is. That's awesome. All right. Brian, you want the next one? What's that? Uh, You're next. No, you already did this, right? Yeah, yeah. David's next. I got to keep track of what's happening here. David, you're next. Okay. Yep. So my next item is a
1: uh, library or framework, I'm not sure which one it falls under, called Daxter. It is a data orchestrator for machine learning, analytics, and ETL. Uh, it's one of the first attempts I, I, I tried for any kind of data pipeline, uh, and it's it's based in Python, so you programmatically build up your pipeline using Python and uh, be, you know be different decorators, depending on what kind of, if you're building a solid, or you know, depending on what you're building in the pipeline or if you're doing configuration, use different decorators. And um, it took a little bit to kind of wrap my head around it. Uh, I think it had more to do with the just kind of understanding how pipelines are typically constructed in industry. But once I got my head wrapped around it, it was really simple to use. I felt like I could produce things pretty quickly. Um, one really nice thing that they do is they you know allow you to essentially um, work on your pipeline locally then deploy to production to like a Kubernetes, or you can deploy to Airflow or Dask or, you know, whatever um, underlying engine you want to, to run your pipeline. And um, the, you know, there's very little um, transition there. Uh, it, you know, you're not developing something local and having to completely change it for, you know, uh, like a cluster, or, you know, larger scale. So, and another really nice feature it has is uh, a UI called Daggett. So you could do everything uh, via the command line if you want to, but um it does come with a really nice uh, ui that allows you to see an overview of your pipeline it allows you to um test it using the playground you can uh, update your configuration in the playground um you can look at previous runs to see if they passed or failed it gives detailed um logging and error messaging so it's it's got you know this this by itself is is pretty pretty nice on top of an already already very nice tool so um i can uh, give cool. a, a quick demo too so Um, This is the I think it's the first part of this tutorial they have you where you have multiple solids. So these represent different uh, different pieces of processing. And then, like I said, you can use the playground. Um, It'll check all of your configuration, everything, to make sure it's correct before it lets you run anything. So if you have something misconfigured, it's not going to blow up halfway through a you know a thirty minute job. And then when you oh Oh, that's nice
0: like that oh no (laughs) that's unfortunate
1: (laughs) yeah no Uh, so I'll probably I'll probably uh, forego the uh, the real-time demonstration. I I think my terminal probably died is what that was, but uh, um, yeah, yeah, it'll actually show a run um, in sequence and show the different pieces that they're completing and feeding into the other piece too. So um, it's not so so much for this because it's uh, a very small, quick pipeline, but if you have like longer SQL queries or something like that, it'll actually kind of show in real-time, you know, how it's processing. So you can kind of get a visual intuition to what's going on um, on top of everything else too. So, yeah. And there are uh, a couple of the resources around this, too, if you want someone that explains it a little bit better than I do. Uh, the Data Engineering Podcast had an episode, and uh, Software Engineering Daily also did an episode about Daxter. So, uh, you know, that's kind of where I first learned about it, and there's a lot of really good information in those podcasts.
0: Yeah, Th- these um, data pipeline frameworks are super interesting. i am starting to realize just how valuable they can be. Dean asks, uh, David, how is this compared to Airflow? Do you have any idea? Have you tried? Have you looked at either?
1: This was, I haven't used Airflow. This is the first, uh, my first stab at any kind of data pipeline. And in my current job, we're not using Airflow or Daxter. We're using one of the cloud-based tools. So uh, it's, I think Airflow is more draggy, droppy, more visual, but I, I could be wrong about that. One, one thing I really liked about Daxter um, is, at least compared to my, what I'm currently using, is that you could programmatically create these interfaces. And t- technically the, the tool I'm using now has a an API that you can, JSON against to create your, your different resources and everything. But it's, it's nice having Python code, because that works a little bit better with my brain than a lot of the draggy, droppy stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, I, I did said.
0: I did have the uh, Airflow folks on the show, on TalkPython, not the show, uh, a little while ago. It's not out yet, but last week maybe. And they pointed out that it's mostly, it's like pretty much all Python here as well. So you you program it in Python over on, on Airflow. And then um, you have similar visual tools to actually see what's happening, but you can't interact with it through those things. You can just like kind of watch it and debug it and, and stuff from my understanding. So I, I would put them in a pretty similar category. I would say one thing that's pretty interesting is there's, that's not what I would pull up. Actually, when Airflow GitHub is what I wanted to sort of point out. I was really surprised to learn that Airflow has 22,000 stars on GitHub, which kind of blew my mind. I thought of it as like a oh, this little framework that people might use. Apparently it's popular I'm not really sure about daxter I guess I could look as well
1: I think it's it's relatively new so I'd be surprised if it were quite as popular as airflow but uh one nice thing that Daxter can do that, yeah, if if you're running if you're running or if you you have airflow uh, pipelines that you're using you can use that server to run daxter too. it can basically compile it to something that's compatible with airflow if you need to do that so and yeah. I, there's a couple different uh, i think translation uh, ways you can translate it to so it's it seems like a pretty interesting tool, and like I said, I, I had developed a small pipeline in in my previous job. It's kind of my first stab at pipelines to to eliminate it, an Excel sheet that was doing a bunch of horrible, awful SQL queries. I could it.
0: just imagine that people are trying to do this with Excel, and it was probably wrong. Oh, it, well, it was not necessarily incorrect, but it was wrong to do it. Well, it was well, it was
1: it was an interesting Excel. Just very interesting to reverse engineering. It's a lot of go to statements. It's it's ubiquitous, but it's definitely as far as, you know, programming production systems, not a good tool, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, very cool. All right, so I got some more uh, real-time updates here. Teddy says, I know one of the big differences with Airflow is that you can use the output of a task as the input of the next task. From what I understand, Daxter is kind of a second-generation data orchestration. Unsure uh, which which uh, generation Airflow would be, but um, here we go. And then uh, Airflow mostly assumes you store and load data in each task, even though... Airflow has something called XCOM, which allows you to pass the output as input of the next. Okay, interesting. Yeah, thanks for all that background uh, info there. I haven't <laughs> used either, but I definitely, definitely think they're both neat. And I feel there's a lot of places that are just like, well, how else are we going to do it? Of course, we're going to use that spreadsheet, right? And if they had tools like this, it would be very empowering. One of the things I find very interesting about these frameworks is usually what you end up building is like the little piece, like load the CSV into the database or run the report that gets me the revenue for the day or or and what you end up building are very, very small pieces and you don't have to worry about the reusability, the reproducibility, the durability. You just go like, I'm going to build an incredibly small bit of Python and we'll just click it in as part of this workflow, which really seems to empower people almost like the microservices story, but for data processing without all the hard deployment side of things.
2: I hope that they, if they don't already have it, I hope that they put a tool connected with Degster called Degnavit because it needs to be there. I think Um, maybe some sort of capture tool or something. Degnavit would be good. Yeah, yeah,
0: I I love the UI bit bit of it as well. All right, a quick bit of follow-up. I guess, Brian, you want to start? You got any extras today?
2: Uh, I've got just a a vanity extra. So um, one of the things that um, uh, we noticed, uh, uh, Will uh, mentioned about Textual. We talked about Textual briefly. Um, the stars on on uh, textual is just, just going through the roof.
0: I love the graph. What like is this the uh the XKCD format of Matplotlib or something? What is this?
2: Um, it's a it's a, I have no idea. what it yeah, is, but it's
0: Anyway, it's show a, us the other pictures. This is yeah, the stars are insane. It's like a vertical yeah, so line on a graph. That one of pretty.
2: my one of my own projects has a similar trajectory, so I wanted to just highlight that. Um, it's looking up too. Um, of course, I only have 16 stars uh, and Will <laughs> has like 3,000.
1: A little different, but still, look, it's done, wow. looks kind of no, the that's, same, don't you think?
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: <laughs> it's 16 no, stars most, most of my repos, so.
0: Hey, you just gotta <laughs> anyway. extrapolate it out a little bit. No, that's that's really cool, awesome. <laughs> David, do you so, have any extra you... stuff you wanna throw out? Sorry, Brian. Yeah, I had one one extra. I didn't load it
1: on my screen over here. Let me see if I can pop it over real, real quick. Uh... But uh, and this isn't Python, but I know SQL and Python. (laughs) Are you going to go back to some
0: uh, uh, nostalgic time on the internet where you open up a DOS prompt and type Win to start Windows? What is this?
1: This this is a modern SQL. It's a really fantastic slideshow that goes through a lot of updates. So if you're still doing SQL the old-fashioned way, it shows you how you can replace that with you know better, cleaner, more Mm -hmm. concise versions of. And there are so many things in here that I have was doing a lot of like just horrible hacky tricks to get to work that you could take care of for in one line for SQL and that, you know, even with some of the newer things I've learned, like there's just so many, so many great, great, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you call them tools or methods or what, but yeah, it, yeah. you know, Python and uh, SQL tend to work together a lot, especially in the, the data space. So if you're kind of like me where you you have some, some I guess, uh, self-taught SQL experience, something like this can be very helpful uh, to kind of learn some of the, I guess, better practices for, for different things that you might want to try to do with SQL.
2: No, no this is great because I, I learned SQL like in the 90s. So it's changed a lot
0: since then. And I was just thinking the same thing, Brian. Like I, It's been at least 10 years since I've tried to refresh my SQL skill. Uh, yeah. So there's probably a lot of stuff that's, oh, you, you shouldn't do this. Like, oh, why do you do this? If you use this other keyword, it's more efficient, safer, faster. Come on. Mm.
2: Yeah, that's, that's like it. Jealous of the people learning SQL now. Yeah. How about you, Michael? Got anything extras?
0: I got some follow up, some follow up from last time. This comes to us from John Hagen, and w- I think I probably is the one who said this. So I said, "Oh, there's really cool type would like about being able to use lowercase d dict and lowercase l list as type hints rather than from typing import capital L list or capital D dict, right?" said, oh, that's yeah. coming in 3.10, fantastic. He's like, uh, you know, that's in uh, 3.9. So it's kind of already out. Like, oh, right, okay. Uh, but he did point out some things that are coming that are neat. So for example, we're previously we had to say if I want a potentially optional, it could be none or it could be a list and the list, if it is a list, has strings, you have to say optional bracket list bracket str. And those are all capital because they have this parallel type implementation over in typing, right? Yeah. In Python 3.9, I can now say, optional of lowercase l list, a bracket string. Sure. And you might think, who cares if it's lowercase or uppercase l? Well, the difference is you don't have to do an import and explain to people who don't know that code, like, oh, you've got to go import this other type things to say the type. Yes, I know list is right there, but you can't use list. You got to do something else, right? So that's the feature that I was excited about that I said was in 3.10, in 3.9, so hooray. But he also pointed out that the union Operators were simplified. It used to be you would have a similar syntax for union as optional. You would say union of bracket one thing comma bracket the other thing. But now you can say just type one pipe vertical bar type two, and this actually allows us to model optional without importing optional. So instead of optional of list of string, we can just have list of string pipe none.
2: Yeah, this is cool, and and I'm glad somebody pointed out because the the three ten announcements don't say anything about optional, Um, but in in effect, they do. You you don't have to use this anymore. But are you going to yeah. start using this? Uh, the the pipe thing? Well, yeah, and the optional thing because I, I started to, and then I realized that if I start using that, then my code is three ten only. Um,
0: yes, exactly. So. Which so it depends on the 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 scenarios, right? So for say talk Python training, the code all behind that, I control the server. Um, yeah, nobody's it's looking easy, at it. So. It's easy for me to make it the brand new thing. If I were to say generate, uh, if I were going to build an example app for a course, then I would be hesitant to use this right away. I might wait a year or two because I don't want to have to have people have a bad experience. Like, well, I have 3.9. That's pretty new. That should be work. like, nope, that doesn't work because of, I didn't want to say the word optional, right? Yeah. Uh, and if it, it was an open source project, I, I guess it would depend on how, if I wanted to support older versions. Pro- probably even longer there. Wait, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I was
1: thinking a library specifically, you'd probably want to almost stick with the three, five to three, at least for a while to kind of flush out people that are using some of the older versions of Python. Um, yeah. Just Yeah, I, I think I three, think nine, I'm using three, nine on everything now, but I think for a lot of people, that's still pretty aggressive um, to have a three, nine or higher requirement for a library.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. A uh, couple of bits of real-time feedback out there. Sam and Dean both say there are fe- Dunder future imports that you can do now that will enable some of this stuff already. So like uh, Dunder fu- from Dunder future import pipe.
2: I, I don't know if that's true <laughs> or if it's a joke. Um,
0: well, I do know that the, the Dunder future um, stuff does support the newer type information. Uh, I don't know about for pipe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. We can, we can do some after coding on this coding yeah. after the recording and we'll, we'll, we'll know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dean says he's kidding. Yeah. So, but there you really can. <laughs> thank you. You really can uh, f- do some of this other type of information with the import under features. Okay. Cool. Um, are you ready for a joke? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Brian. So you're going to have to help me along here. Okay. So Good. there's two developers staring very worried at a screen. They have one s- section, then a dead, a big long. Quiet section, and then some more. So you be the very first person, and I'll I'll be the second person here.
2: Okay, okay. I hope it works. Do
0: not hope. Pray, <laughs> pray it works. Yeah. Have you ever been there, and just in the situation where you're just like, oh, you must, it must work. If this doesn't work, we're done. Yeah,
1: yeah. Not so much in this the software side of things, but. When I was a manufacturing engineer, there was so many times we'd be troubleshooting a machine on a Saturday for eight hours straight, and oh you think you made <laughs> that, and everybody's just holding their breath, crossing their fingers, work,
0: work, because yes. you want to go home someday. So yeah, I, mean, I, I remember it, how. It, go ahead, Brian.
2: No, I definitely uh, feel this uh, when I'm using when I'm comp- you working on C plus code because you have to you know wait for it to compile and and then test, load it, and then test it and stuff like that. But even with Python stuff. I still feel this when I'm working on CI tools because the continuous integration, you have to, you know, you're not sure if you got it right, the syntax right, the YAML right or whatever until you push it and see what happens.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, CI is a good point. You have so little visibility in there. And if it's not working, uh, just one better real time follow up on mine here. It's like if you come over here and you look at the um, the PEP 585, it does say the implementation of some of these new features under typing this is the one that's coming out that came out in three nine. So you can say from future import annotations and then start using lowercase L and things oh, like sweet. that. And lowercase D. I who knows. I know Dean said he was joking, but maybe you really can get the pipe to come out that way. But <laughs> but at least you can do like these these um sort of three nine level uh changes using a, a back to three seven, it looks like. Okay. Cool. All right. Cool, cool. Well, that was a lot of fun. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it was. I had another one, but I'm gonna save it. So
0: good. All right, well, I'm looking forward to hear about it next week, David. Thank <laughs> yeah. you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, and thanks for all the tips and stuff you've had throughout the years. And yeah, it's really good to be have you here. And congratulations on your first dev job. That's fantastic.
2: That is fantastic. And uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for thanks, Dean, for um, correcting us in real time. That's awesome. Uh, it's
0: good. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you, everyone. And oh. All Sam does sadly show us that import pipe from the future doesn't work, but yeah. Thanks everyone. See y'all later. Bye. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. Get the full show notes over at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item we should cover, just visit pythonbytes.fm and click submit in the nav bar. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. If you want to join us for the live recording, Just visit the website and click live stream to get notified of when our next episode goes live. That's usually happening at noon Pacific on Wednesdays over at YouTube. On behalf of myself and Brian Aukin, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.